Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope that you're having a great and wonderful day. It has been, I know for myself, pretty busy, and I'm quite sure uh, if you are in the uh, business of independent contracting, or you are an entrepreneur, or you're working two or three jobs, I certainly can empathize with you. (laughs) So it has been a productive day and I'm excited about it. I am, I have some food over here. We'll see if I get to it. I might have to get to it after the show. I really don't like uh, eating while I'm talking. (laughs) Uh, I'll have something to drink, but usually I don't bring food on the show. I know some people... They just go at it with the gusto and I'm like, I can't do that. Um, But I do want to thank you all for tuning in tonight. It is Friday. It is usually our Get Free Friday, Finance Friday, Healthy Wealthy Wise Friday. But right now we are in the midst of looking at different people um, who have had a impact in black history, primarily people of African descent of the formerly enslaved, but there are also some other people, of course, that have impacted uh, Black American history who are Black American, but not necessarily African American. So we're going to be continuing on in two books tonight. We have five people to read about. And once we get done, um, I imagine we'll probably get done before uh, 630 Uh, I will open it up for us to share and have some conversation around these people. I was able to find, this was just like a stumble upon, but I was able to find an incredible find called Black Reflections. Look at what it is. It is literally the artwork from the Harlem Renaissance. The studio that we read about, the Studio Museum in Harlem, and it has incredible works by the by the artists and a little bit about each one of the artists. And so I will be, as you can see, I started marking these for our next show. I'll be showing you some of their artwork and talking about their lives uh, specifically and their influences. So that is really exciting to have stumbled upon it. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And yeah, I'm excited. So tonight we're going to start with the Fierce 44, Black Americans Who Shook Up the World. And just for clarity, the term Black American does not necessarily mean that you are of um, enslaved descent. It simply means that you are identified as a Black person in the world. So that could mean um, Black as in from Africa. That could mean um uh, Latin X, that could mean uh, Afro-Guyani, um, that could mean Afro-Trinidadian, that could mean Afro-Cuban, a lot of different things. So when you see that label Black American, it does not necessarily mean that everybody's heritage comes out of enslavement. Um, but typically in this country, when we identify as African American, that label was really initially to identify um, people who had, whose descendants had come out of enslavement. It was not necessarily meant to identify people who came from Africa to America. And now we call them as well African 
Americans. That's not what that um, word was initially identifying. It was actually tied to those whose descendants in America had been formerly enslaved. And Jesse Jackson, from my understanding, uh, coined that term. So it does have a history uh, behind it. All right. So let's see who we are diving into this evening. We're going to start with <clears throat> Simone Biles. Simone Biles, well-known gymnast all around. I believe she got, <coughs> excuse me, either person of the year or athlete of the year for one of the um, well-known magazines. I can't remember which one. But she was born in 1997, and of course, she is living Black history. And I'll show you the uh, picture of her in just a moment. And why is she considered someone who shook up the world? Because the most dominant gymnast ever is still inventing new moves. As a matter of fact, they named moves after her, right? I think there's one or two moves named after her. And also because of some of the moves that she has been trying, they actually um, kind of docked her a little bit at the last Olympics, I believe the Summer Olympics. And we know that she went through some issues with uh, the loss of a relative. Um, we know she went through some um, mental health issues and things of that nature. And she really... Um, along with some others, but she really actually brought to the forefront the need to take care of yourself and the need to not push yourself in a place of danger because, you know, you are trying to please the audience or trying to please the crowd or your sponsors. And a lot of people admire her for standing up for herself. So let's get into it. Simone Ariane Biles, born in Columbus, Ohio, and raised outside of Houston, Texas, was six when an impromptu field trip changed her life, six years old. She and her classmates were at a local gymnastics center where a coach noticed that Biles just couldn't stand still and was bouncing all over the mats. Biles' family signed her up for classes, and her boundless energy, amazing physicality, and acrobatic bravery took flight. Biles, who stands four feet, eight inches tall, began competing internationally in 2013. Later that year, she became only the seventh American and the first African-American to win the all the world all around gymnastics title. But she was just getting started. Biles is the first woman to win three consecutive world all around titles. And in the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Olympics, she won gold medals in the vault floor exercise, individual all-around, and team all-around competition. She invented two moves, one in the floor exercise and another in the vault, that are named after her. Her routines are so difficult that she almost fell off the balance beam and still won a bronze medal in Rio. Bio's accomplishments are even more remarkable because of her childhood. When her birth mother was unable to care for her, Biles and her siblings spent years in foster care before her grandfather and his wife adopted her and her little sister, Adria. Biles now advocates on behalf of foster children and says being part of a family helped her to feel like she mattered. So did finding her passion for gymnastics. 
her twisting, high-flying precision moves, including ones that didn't exist before she made them up, have led many gymnastics judges and fans to consider her the best athlete in the history of the sport. Simone Biles. <clears throat> Let's move to our next person today. Now, also in this uh, particular book, there is a section on Charles Drew, but because we read about him out of the inventor's book, I am going to bypass him in this book tonight. And we're headed over to Mr. Frederick Douglass. Most people know about Frederick Douglass. He was, at his time, they say he was one of the most widely uh, photographed persons in history. He was very, very well known. We know him as abolitionist. We know him as author. We also know him as rebel <laughs> against being enslaved. He lived from 1818 to 1895. Let's take a listen to Frederick Douglass. Why? Because his voice rose from slavery to challenge the denial of black humanity. And here is the illustration of him in this book. Born on a Maryland farm in 1818, Frederick Douglass was the son of a slave mother or an enslaved mother and a white father who may have been his owner. When Douglass was eight, he was sent to Baltimore to work for a ship carpenter. The carpenter's wife started to teach him to read and Douglass recognized there was a connection between knowledge and freedom. At 15, Douglas was sent to a different farm to work for a brutal man with a reputation as a slave breaker. Douglas hated the man and his time on the farm and tried to escape. Eventually, Douglas was sent back to Baltimore where he worked as a slave in a shipyard. When he turned 20, he met a free black woman who helped him to escape. She bought him a train ticket to New York and disguised as a sailor, he was on his way to freedom. Once he was in the North, Douglas started to talk to anti-slavery groups about his personal experience. He was a dynamic speaker who knew how to hold an audience. He was tall and graceful and had a voice that made you pay attention to what he had to say. Some people doubted that such a good speaker could have ever been a slave. So, in 1845, Douglas wrote his own autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, with all the details of his upbringing a vivid portrayal of physical brutality, mental torture, and the separation of family members, the memoir brought the horrors of slavery into the light and became the most influential personal story of slavery in U.S. history. Besides fighting for abolition, Douglas was also an outspoken supporter of women's rights and continued to push for equality all of his life. May we all do the same. All right, and I want to say, I think it's near me. Yes, it is. <clears throat> One of the most uh, recent books that has come out about him, and I was able to get this from Thrift Books because it is pretty expensive, but thriftbooks.com, thank you so very much. Thank you so very much. <laughs> um, this is one of the most recent books that have come out about him. Uh, I'm planning on tackling this when I get ready to read one of, uh, I spend some time reading biographies, but I plan on tackling this one 
And of course, it's named after him, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom by David W. Blight. So if you're looking for something, uh, a more adult read about Frederick Douglass, something to challenge you, this is a doozy. All right, moving right along to our last person out of this book, W.E.B. Dubois. Why? Because he explained the conflicted nature of being African and American. Okay. W.E.B. Dubois lived from 1868 to 1963. William Edward Burgart Dubois, that's what his name stands for, the first African-American to receive a Ph.D. from Harvard University was a brilliant scholar who changed how black people saw their place in the world. But he was also a political activist who helped start the NAACP along with others. He crusaded against lynching and tried to unite black people across the world. His most famous book, The Souls of Black Folk, which you should have in your library, <laughs> was published in 1903 and introduced the idea of double consciousness in which black people always have to think about how white people see them, especially to remain safe in this world. Dubois rejected the arguments of Booger T. Washington, the most influential black leader of the time, who asked blacks to accept discrimination while trying to improve they were worthy of equal treatment through hard work. Instead, Dubois believed blacks should actively fight discrimination and racism. Now, later in his life, W.E.B. Dubois does come back around to acknowledge Booker T. Washington's ideas and the validity of his ideas in terms of hard work, in terms of um, trade, in terms of um, getting things done for ourselves, and not waiting on integration. So yes, um, at the beginning of their life, they were more different than they were alike, but towards the end of Dubois's life, he does acknowledge um, sort of a both and, that they needed both parts of what each one of them was saying in order for Black America to have a more complete picture of their um, progress and future. <clears throat> Dubois acted on his beliefs. He helped start the NAACP and was the founder and first editor of its crusading magazine, The Crisis. Um, which we saw yesterday, the uh, Black Writers' Room for the Crisis. He criticized President Woodrow Wilson for resegregating the federal government and continually spoke up for social justice. Dubois ran for the U.S. Senate in New York, representing American Labor Party, and became chair of the Peace Information Center, which sought to ban nuclear weapons around the world. At one point, Dubois was arrested and charged with being an agent of the Soviet Union. He was found not guilty and later moved to Ghana, where he stayed until the end of his life. And can you really blame him? <laughs> if your government decides that they want to try to arrest you for being a foreign agent, would you stay in the United States? Because, you know, I mean, it's it's... It's that time of, of the century, right? Where people are being lynched, uh, being taken out. And Dubois makes the decision that, hey, if this is how you all are gonna treat me as a citizen of this country, then 
I think I'll be taking making my exodus. And he did. Um, and I believe that there is now a sort of a W.E.B. Dubois-like center and things of that nature over in Ghana to this day. So it's something that you might want to check out. All right, we have two more that we're going to be reading from tonight. This is from the book, A Black Woman Did That, 43 Boundary Breaking, Bar Raising, World Changing Women. And as we know, March is Women's History Month, so we'll definitely be back in this book again, along with some others. Tonight, we're going to look at uh, Patricia Bath, Dr. Patricia Bath, and the author, Lorraine Hansberry and Playwright. I am really loving these illustrations. Very well done. And let's learn a little bit about Patricia. Patricia Bath's interest in medicine was sparked when she learned about the renowned Dr. Albert Schweitzer, a European philosopher and physician who often appeared in the news because of work he did building and running a hospital in Gabon in Africa. The story of his helping people with leprosy inspired her to take her first step toward a career in medicine. At 16, she applied for and won a scholarship from the National Science Foundation to attend a summer program at Yeshiva University. There she studied the relationship between stress, nutrition, and cancer. After completing high school in only two and a half years, Patricia went on to study chemistry and physics at Hunter College. In 1968, she got her medical degree at Howard University College of Medicine. She had a special interest in ophthalmology, which is the branch of medicine that deals with the structure of the eye and eye disorders and their treatments. While getting her medical degree, she worked at two hospitals in different areas of New York City. This allowed her to see differences in the medical needs and treatment options found in different communities. She noticed that half of the patients she saw in Harlem, mostly black and brown, coming into the ophthalmology department were visually impaired or blind. At Columbia University, which served a mostly white community, far fewer people suffered from visual impairment. She wondered why. There must have been a reason for the disparity in people's eye health. Patricia did what any good scientist would do. She dove into research on the subject and learned that black people suffered blindness at twice the rate of white people. One of her quotes is, when I encountered discrimination, I stayed focused on my goal. She concluded that lack of access to eye care was the reason for the higher rate of blindness. Patricia was disturbed. She regarded eyesight as a basic human right. Her solution was to propose a new worldwide system known as community ophthalmology in which eye care volunteers were trained to test the vision of people in underserved communities and screen them for things like cataracts, glaucoma, and other serious eye conditions. As a result of her efforts, thousands of people who would have otherwise gone undiagnosed and untreated got the care that they needed. In 1974, the native New Yorker moved to Los Angeles where she became the first African-American woman surgeon at the UCLA Medical Center, as well as the first woman to join the faculty of the UCLA Stein Eye Institute. Along with Alfred Cannon and Aaron 
Ifekundwe. Erin Ifekungwe, excuse me, she founded the American Institute for the Prevention of Blindness in 1976. In the middle of one cold, rainy night a few years later, she was working in the lab when she had a breakthrough using lasers to treat cataracts in the eye. Cataracts cause blurry vision and if left untreated, they can cause blindness. Patricia was thrilled by her findings but not all of her colleagues who were white men were encouraging. She recalls telling the director of the lab about her breakthrough only to be met with disbelief. He said it was impossible that she had devised the treatment by herself. Some of her colleagues resented her success. In 1986, Patricia pursued her interest in laser technology at prestigious institutes in Berlin, Paris, and the town of Lowborough in the United Kingdom. There is where she developed a laser instrument to remove cataracts. More than 25 million Americans are affected by cataracts. Her invention called the laser phaco probe was patented in May 1988 and has since been used to restore the sight of countless people around the world. Some of the people she helped have been blind for decades. By 2001, having changed the state of medical care for African Americans and the state of eye care for people throughout the world, Patricia was inducted into the International Women in Medicine Hall of Fame. One of her quotes is, I hope that through my past legacy and future advocacy, the current and future generations of young scientists will not experience the hurtful wounds of discrimination of any kind. And our last read for tonight is Lorraine Hansberry. Many people know her from A Raisin in the Sun. Lorraine Hansberry's mom gave birth to her in the 1930s in the first Black-owned and Black-operated hospital in the nation. Her parents owned the building where they lived in Chicago and rented out the units they didn't use for themselves. Owning property meant that they lived better than most families around them. Lorraine loved her neighbors and had a joyful childhood. In a piece called Chicago, Southside Summers, originally published as On Summer, she wrote, My childhood Southside Summers were the ordinary city kind, full of the street games which others, other remembers have turned into fine ballets these days, and rhymes that anticipated what some people insist on calling modern poetry. She described nights spent mainly on the back porches where screen doors slammed in the darkness with those really special summertime sounds. She loved the company of the children around her, but was sensitive to the fact that many of them lacked adequate shelter, clothing, and food. They were aware as well that she was better off than they were with a father who was a landlord and worked in real estate. Lorraine's father had his own struggles though. Being a black man in a time when racism was practiced so openly in the North and the South meant that he had to work twice as hard as white businessmen to be successful. Housing in Chicago was racially segregated. There were many neighborhoods where black people were not welcome. When her father insisted on buying a home in one of these neighborhoods, he knew he'd have to fight in court and with white neighbors in order to keep it. When Lorraine was seven years old and her father moved their family into a white neighborhood, she, her mom, and her siblings were spat at, cursed, and pummeled in the daily trek 
to and from school. But she thrived at Inglewood High School and added theater to her interests. She went on to the University of Wisconsin and the New School for Social Research in New York City, but did not get a degree. She then studied art in Chicago and Mexico. She had a curious mind and a strong desire to express herself in words. Lorraine was also interested in politics. She ultimately found the political and creative mentors she was looking for in New York City, where she moved in 1950. She joined a community of progressive and left-leaning thinkers. Shortly after arriving in the city, her first published work appeared in a magazine called Masses and Mainstream. She wrote for Freedom, a progressive anti-racist newspaper founded by activist and performing artist Paul Robeson and edited by Louis Burnham. To achieve her goal of publishing her books, Lorraine had to get past the gatekeepers at publishing houses who doubted that stories, books, and plays representing Black points of view could be popular and criticized her for not telling stories that all people could relate to. She disagreed. I believe, she said, to create the universal, you must pay very great attention to the specific. That's powerful. She wrote about the lives of the people she grew up with on the south side of Chicago, her father and her father's tenants. As Amani Perry wrote in the biography, Looking for Lorraine, Lorraine's work exposed the national lies of liberty and democracy. She was a prolific writer who gained a reputation for being one of the greatest thinkers of her generation. Her 1959 play, A Raisin in the Sun, was the first play by a black woman to be produced on Broadway, New York City's theater district. It tells the story of a black family in Chicago, similar to the one she grew up with. In the play, a grown-up son, Walter Lee, argues with his mother over what to do with the life insurance money she receives after her husband's death. When mama decides to buy a house in a racially restricted white neighborhood, the drama unfolds. Lorraine died way too young. Her life was cut short by illness when she was 34. But the plays and the writings that were her body of work made her immortal in the hearts and minds of her generation and beyond. One of the main quotes that most people um, recognize from Lorraine Hansberry's work is this one, which also got turned into a song by Nina Simone. Though it be a thrilling and marvelous thing to be merely young and gifted in such times, it is doubly so, doubly dynamic to be young, gifted, and black. All right. See, I did it in under 30 minutes. If you are listening tonight, I want to thank you for your time and attention. If you want to come in and share your thoughts and your insights on the people that we've talked about tonight, um, we talked about Simone Biles, Patricia, Dr. Patricia Bath, Frederick Douglass, uh, W.E.B. Dubois, and Lorraine Hansberry, and who was my last person? I think that was everybody. Five, right? So if you'd like to come in and give some remarks on what you thought about their lives, and the information we've shared tonight on them, feel free to um, click the camera. If you are listening by Anchor, I want to thank you for your time and attention. And listen, if you have friends, if you have older adults that are not on IG, they're not on YouTube, send them the podcast link. 
Um, you can listen to the podcast through phone on any smartphone device. It's anchor.fm forward slash daring dialogues, and they can hear the audio version of our video talk on tonight. To those of you who are listening tonight, thank you for tuning in until tomorrow. Well, until Sunday, have a great and wonderful evening.